All right. All right, so we're going to do a study on 1 John, and I've titled it, Oh, What Fellowship, Oh, What Joy Divine. And so this is just going to be an introduction uh, this morning, and it's probably going to go a couple of Sundays. And you know how introductions can go sometimes. They can be just as dry as dust. So we'll see. Leaning on the everlasting arms. That's right, leaning on the everlasting arms. So um, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to do an introduction before we actually get into the meat of the epistle. So I'm going to cover some particulars, points, purpose, and the protagonists of this epistle. Okay? And we may get as far as the points. We'll see. So in the beginning, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and read John 1, verses 1 through 4, so at least we have scripture in our minds. And it says, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. Father in heaven, we come to you now, Lord God, and I desperately need your help as we begin this study. Uh, Lord, this is a very deep book, a very important book, especially in these times. And so, Lord God, I look to you to help me to bring out the truth that's contained in this word about a very important matter, and that is our fellowship with you. I pray, Father in heaven, that you would open this book to our hearts and to our minds, that, Father in heaven, we would know the blessedness of having fellowship with you and with your Son. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, the first blank on your on your uh, worksheet is the author, and that, of course, is the Apostle John. The Apostle John would go in the blank. The Apostle John is the author of the first John, second John, third John. He's also the author of the Gospel according to John, and he's also the author of the book of Revelations. Okay, so uh, that's it. So John's name means Jehovah is a gracious giver. And that'll go in your blank. Jehovah is a gracious giver. Uh, In the Hebrew, John's name means Jehovah has graced uh, or has shown grace. Uh, The Hebrew name is is a conjunction of two words, Jehovah or Jah or Yah, I should say, Yehovah, Yah, and Keran, which is the Hebrew word that means to show grace, to show mercy, uh, to bestow favor. So John's name means Jehovah is a gracious giver. So on your blank, the gracious giving nature of God is seen throughout John's gospel. The gracious giving nature of God is seen throughout John's gospel. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 
John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. John 6.31-32 Our fathers did eat manna in the desert as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then said Jesus said unto them Verily, verily I say unto you Moses gave you not that bread from heaven but my father giveth you the bread uh, giveth you the true bread from heaven as you read through John's gospel time and time and time again you're going to read about God giving us something so he's a very gracious God a very giving God and of course the culmination of Jehovah's gracious gift is who? Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus gave his life for you and me. That is a gracious, giving God. The Apostle Paul, in writing about this gracious Jehovah, wrote in the epistle to the Romans, Romans eight thirty one to 32, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So God is a very gracious and giving God. And you know what? What God has given to us in grace, he will never take away. He will never take it away. He's not, and this is probably not politically correct today, he is not an Indian giver, right? Of course, if you know your Western history, it's the other way around. He's not a white man giver, all right? So, uh, so, he's, so whatever he's given in grace, he will not take away. Something else on your worksheet. Uh, John is, refer- is also referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. John 21, 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. That's speaking of John. That's speaking of John. Uh, It's interesting, in John's gospel, John never mentions his name. He never mentions his name. He, He speaks of himself. Is that in the third person? Yeah, he, he never mentions his name. He speaks of himself in the third person about five times. If you look through the Gospel of John, you'll discover that five times John is, is referred to as whom Jesus loved. Whom Jesus loved. Now, um, the number five. That's kind of interesting. Uh, now, some say that this is purely coincidental. Uh, that five times we read about John, whose name means Jehovah is gracious, is a gracious giver. Uh, but yet he's mentioned five times in his gospel that he is the one whom Jesus loved. Now a lot of folks will say, well that's just purely coincidence. But, if you've been around here for very long and you've heard people preach and teach the word of God, we know that God just doesn't fill his book with coincidences, coincidences does he? No, there's, there's, there's reason for some of this stuff. So, I got to thinking about this, and um, can anybody in here tell me what the number five represents in the Bible? What's a, what's a, a type of? Anybody? Death. Very good. Death. Uh, so on your worksheet, often in the Bible, the number five can be associated with death. 
Now stick with me, I've got a point here. Uh, Asael in 2 Samuel 2.23, Abner 2 Samuel 3.27, Ish, Ishbosheth in 2 Samuel 4.5-6, Amasa in 2 Samuel 20.10. What do all of these men have in common? They died. Well, yes, Ron, they did die. <laughs> That's why he's sitting in the front of the class right there. No, they were all smote in the fifth rib. They were all smote in the fifth rib. Jesus had a spear pierce his side, right? Uh, By the Roman soldier. And what came out? Water and blood, right? So he was pierced in the rib. Uh, What's the fifth rib all about? Well, the fifth rib on the left-hand side happens to be the location of your heart. So when you get stuck in the fifth rib, that blade will go right through your heart. It'll just sever your heart. Just so that's that's a mortal wound. That's a mortal wound. Uh, continuing with the number five, uh, being associated with the death of the Bible, we read of seven sacrifices listed in the book of Leviticus. And I gave you a, a little chart there. It's not my chart, but it's a, it's, a, it's a neat little chart. We've got the burnt offering and the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. And I like what this guy did here, so that's why I included it. If you um, think about it, there's also a a, a hermeneutical principle in the Bible called the principle of full mention. Well, Romans chapter 5 gives us the full mention of the meaning between Adam's death and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's Romans chapter 5. How many stones did David pick up to take down Goliath? He picked up five stones, didn't he? One for Goliath and four for his, his kin. Uh, so these are just a few of the literary coincidences found in your Bible with the number five in association uh, with death. And so clearly uh, God is teaching us something here. Now what else is the number five associated with besides death in the Bible? Yes, grace. Grace. So on your worksheet, there is also a connection with grace in the number five in the Bible. Um, Life first appears on earth on the fifth day in Genesis 1. Uh, When Adam sinned in the garden concerning the tree of knowledge, grace was shown to Adam and Eve by God providing them with coats of skins that resulted in the death of an innocent. Genesis 3.21, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. He made a coat for each of them. Okay? That's important. Why is that important? Because salvation is personal. You see, just because I got saved doesn't mean that my wife would get saved. Salvation is a personal thing. That's why there were two coats made to cover both Adam and Eve's um, nakedness. So unto Adam and Eve, an innocent was slain to cover their nakedness. The point being that by the, by the death of an innocent, grace was shown to the guilty. Grace was shown to the guilty. And even though it may not say this in Genesis, uh, but my bet would be it was a lamb. My bet would be it was a lamb. 
When God extended grace to Abraham in Genesis 15, there were five animals that were sacrificed. Uh, five, again, five animals are mentioned in Leviticus that God chose for Israel to offer as a sacrifice to be, given for, to be forgiven for their sin. And I gave you another chart, one that I came up with, and it kind of lays out the type of the Lord Jesus Christ compared with the offering. So that, you know, so that's for your, uh, your perusal if you, if you want to hang on to it. And uh, I want to say th- something about the meal offering. Uh, I've read folks who, uh, you know, say the type kind of breaks down with a meal offering because um, there is no shed blood in the meal offering because it's 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 a loaf of bread, right? Um, it's true that no mention of blood is made, uh, but Leviticus. 2.14 uh, speaks of the first fruits of a meal offering. And of course we know that this first fruits is a type of Jesus Christ's resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15.23. And uh, it seems evident that there must be some reference to his death earlier, earlier in Leviticus 2. And that's found in verse 6 where they take this meal offering, this loaf, and they break it or part it up into pieces. They break it up. They break it up. So this this loaf or cake is broken apart. So it's a type of the broken bread that represents our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in Matthew 26, 26? And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. This is my body. So that does represent the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Something interesting, uh, the Hebrew word for cake in Leviticus 2.4 speaks of a pierced cake. Now I know I've watched my wife bake something and she'll poke holes in it. I don't, don't know why she does that. But she pokes holes in it. Well, that's the same thing with this bread. This bread is pierced before it is baked. Now, who do we know who was pierced? Right. And what is fire representative of? Judgment. So Jesus Christ was pierced to take upon us, uh, take upon himself our judgment. All right? So that's just a little bit of Bible study. So on your worksheet... One could say that grace and death cannot be separated. Cannot be separated. Romans 5.15 says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. You cannot separate death and grace. Romans 5.17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. So death and grace are inseparable. That's why the number five represents both death and grace. You see that? So by the death of Jesus Christ, we receive grace 
and eternal life from the Father. Hebrews 2, 9 through 10. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for some men. It says every man. What? I said thanks for correcting. Yeah. It's every man. For it became him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So, why did I go through this little exercise? Well, according to the first three verses of 1 John, if Jesus had not come, we may not have this fellowship with the Father. You see that? We may not have this fellowship with the Father. Praise God that the word of life was manifested. Now the date of writing. Um, It's estimated that John's epistle was written around 90 A.D. to maybe 92 A.D. Uh, You know how things go with these guys? Uh, Really can't pinpoint certain things. So 90 to 92 AT is a pretty good uh, estimation. Uh, John was the last surviving apostle of the 12 and this would also include the Apostle Paul. That is a, a certainty. Uh, he, was, uh, he was the last uh, living apostle uh, at that time. Uh, we also know that uh, the Apostle John was exiled to what isle? Patmos, yeah, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for his faith. Revelations 1.9, we learned that. Uh, Patmos is located just off the coast of what we know today as Turkey, uh, not too far from Ephesus. Um, the Bible doesn't give us details on how uh, the Apostle John actually died. But according to uh, church uh, tradition, church history, uh, we know a little bit about what took place in John's life uh, just prior to his uh, uh, going home to glory. Um, He was arrested in Ephesus uh, because of his preaching. Uh, He was facing martyrdom. Uh, His enemies attempted to boil John in a vat of oil. So they lowered him down in this vat of oil and no harm came to him. How frustrating that must have been to his persecutors. (laughs) You know, here they have this boiling oil and the man just standing there in this oil. So he was delivered from death and and they pulled him up out of that uh, vat of boiling oil unscathed. There wasn't a mark on him. Kind of like when um, um, the three friends were tossed into the furnace of Nebuchadnezzar, right? They didn't even have the smell of smoke on their clothes. Their hair wasn't even singed. The only thing that was destroyed in that fire was what? The ro- well, the men that threw them in, but the ropes that they tied them up with. Which I could never figure out. If you're going to throw a man in a burning furnace, why are you going to tie him up? You know, that, that doesn't make any sense. It's not like he's going to crawl out of there. But that's the only thing that was uh, burned up. Anyway, that's another, another story. Uh, The Roman emperor Domitian uh, sentenced John to slave labor in the mines of Patmos. That's how he ended up there. And it was while he was there on the Isle of Patmos, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ visited John and gave John uh, the book of Revelation. 
Now, in uh, the Gospel of John, we read in John 22, uh, 21-21, Peter seeing him saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Speaking of John, Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren, that the, that, that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? What is that to thee? This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So one could say that John indeed remained alive until he witnessed the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because is that not the theme of the book of Revelations? And did not John see the vision of the Lord's return? That's what, what is it, Revelations 19 is all about. So yeah, John did hang around until he saw Jesus Christ come. Then uh, the Roman emperor Nerva, Domitian's successor, uh, freed the apostle John uh, from the Isle of Patmos and allowed him to return back to Ephesus. And that's where John um, served out his time. And they believe that John died a very old man around about 98 A.D. About 98 A.D. He's the only apostle to have died uh, peacefully. The only one to die peacefully. Now, points about the, uh, about the epistle. Again, this is all just introduction. On your worksheet, uh, Paul is said to be the apostle of faith. Peter, the apostle of hope, and John, the apostle of love. Faith, hope, love. And certainly you read about love throughout John's gospel and throughout John's epistles. So by all three of these men being inspired by the Holy Ghost, we have that uh, trinity of faith, hope, and charity that 1 Corinthians 13, 13 talks about. Uh, where Paul is logical and methodical, Peter practical and plain-spoken, John is uh, experiential and contemplative. <laughs> Big words, I know. Uh, when you're reading the epistles of Paul and Peter, you find the doctrines and reproof, corrections and instructions, but you find them in nice packaged parts, don't you? Yeah, they're very... Logical. They're 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 uh, very easy to outline, very easy to see. But when you come to John's epistle, it's it's a different animal altogether. Because in John's epistle, if you who, who in here has read First John? Okay. Now, when you read through First John, it's not in nice little logical sequences, is it? Well, the reason for that is because John teaches upon recurrent themes. He'll mention a theme, and then he'll move on, and then he'll mention that theme again. And what he does is he builds layer upon layer upon layer of truth. Some folks refer to this as as, um, circular reasoning. He begins at a point... And he adds to that point, adds to that point, always returning back to it. And I'll give you an example here in just a few minutes. John's epistle is written from the perspective of experience, 
in contemplation for the intention of assurance. I'm going to say that one more time. I don't think it's on your worksheet. John's epistle is written from the perspective of experience and contemplation for the intention of assurance. He wants to assure you of something. And so he builds upon these truths layer after layer after layer, laying down a firm foundation. Often you'll read the phrase in John's epistle, hereby we know, or we know, or hereby we perceive. Constantly he's saying that. Uh, This contemplation, uh, this scrutiny, this message which we have heard of him declare unto you, 1 John 1, 5, is focused upon a person. Focused upon a person. The word of life, the eternal life. This word of life John wrote about in his gospel, and John writes in his gospel what he and others had witnessed and experienced of the word of life. That's what the gospel is all about. So the first three verses here that he's talking about, which we have handled, which we have seen, which we have heard, that's the gospel of John. That's the gospel of John. He's writing from an eyewitness standpoint. That's why he says, hereby we know. I was there. I was there. Now John writes in his epistle that we also may know this same experience of fellowship with God who is light, righteousness, and love and with his son Jesus Christ. Because that's what John desires for us. That's what John desires for us. And this fellowship with God would not be possible if it were not for three points that John writes about in his epistle, in this epistle and he builds upon. The first one is the manifestation of the word of life. That's your blank there. The manifestation of the word of life. The first essential for fellowship is this manifestation of the word of life that is eternal life, who is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John 1.9 On your worksheet, what John writes in in this epistle are declarations of truth to be believed and not so much the reasoned arguments for that truth we believe. Okay? Declarations of truth versus the reasoned arguments for the truth. 1 John 5.11 it says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. That's pretty black and white, isn't it? That's pretty plain and simple. That's a declaration of truth. On your worksheet, this is a declaration of an established fact. This was not written for the purpose of debate. This is written in the record book of heaven. You do not argue against this. John repeatedly uses this word record in his gospel. John utilizes the word record ten times as a confirmation of the truth that he has personally, firsthand witnessed and in confidence declares this to be true. 
John 19.35, And he that saw it bear record. And his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true that ye might believe. So on your worksheet, the word record is to give official testimony. To that which one has seen, heard, and experienced is true, and that therefore the testimony can can be recorded as true in the books. So we're getting an eyewitness account. An eyewitness account. In John's gospel, this declaration of truth is seen in that we know we have eternal life. Why? Because God declares it so. It's not my declaration. It's not John's declaration. It's God declaring this. And who am I to argue with God? But a lot of people do. A lot of people do. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them gave he the power, gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's pretty straightforward. John 3.16 through 18. We all know this practically by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's no debate there. It's pretty clear. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. That is so simple and so clear. John 5.39 he says search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of me and ye will not come to me that ye might have life. John 11.25 Jesus said unto her I am the resurrection and the life he that believeth in me though he were dead yet shall he live and whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die believest thou this. These are declarations of truth. These are not up for debate. This is not up for arguments. These are very clear declarations of truth. In John's Gospel, one is told how to be saved, while in John's Epistle, one is assured to know that one is saved and that one can have fellowship with the Father and the Son. So John's Gospel tells you how to get saved, John's epistle assures you of that salvation. In conjunction with this record, one of the key phrases of John's epistle is, Hereby we know. Hereby we know. We know. Hereby we know. John wrote in his epistle these truths that we know that are on record in heaven. So on your worksheet... Again, I'm going to reiterate, these truths are not the reasoned arguments of faith as presented by the Apostle Paul, but statements of faith declared by an eyewitness of these truths. We have an eyewitness account. In John's epistle, he provides proofs so that we can know we have eternal life because of certain corroborations we experience by fellowship with God who is light, righteousness, and love. 
Is everybody keeping up? Can you say the planks one more time? The second plank. The reason arguments. Statements of faith. These truths are not the reason arguments of faith that are presented by the Apostle Paul, but statements of faith declared by an eyewitness of these truths. Yeah. That's one of the hiccups of working with a worksheet. Because <laughs> I have a lot of material to cover. I, I know. But, but we're having a hard time keeping up a little bit. Okay. I'll slow down. So on your next blank on your worksheet, both our <laughs> too slow. Okay. Both our relationship with God and our experience of God, that is our fellowship with God, are dependent upon the word of life who is that eternal life. It is through Jesus Christ that we have fellowship with the Father. So 1 John 1, 3, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So on your worksheet, in John's Gospel, the emphasis is faith in the Son of God. In John's epistle, it is fellowship with the Son of God that is emphasized. Faith and fellowship. Good? Okay. I really struggled with providing a worksheet. I really did. Okay. Number two. Okay. Number two. The second essential for fellowship is the unction from the Holy One. Unction. U-N-C-T-I-O-N. It's right there in 1 John, uh, Kaylee. (laughs) Now here, I'll give you an example how how, uh, the Apostle John layers truth upon truth upon truth. Yes, ma'am. Can you give me a uh, verse, chapter verse, says I'm headed that way. Okay. <laughs> but because you asked, Pam, it's 1 John 2.20. But I am headed that way. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. So I want to show you how John layers truth upon truth upon truth. And this is just one of the many examples. So, on your worksheet, this is important for us to understand. Sonship is not acquired through fellowship with God. But fellowship with God is the issue and fruit of sonship. Alright? So sonship is not acquired through fellowship with God, but fellowship with God is the issue and fruit of being a son of God. That make sense? Okay. The relation of sonship is established through our personal faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. 
I read all of those verses. Hereby we know, right? John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That word power is also the word authority. So if you receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are now, you are now an authorized Son of God according to the Father in heaven. In Galatians 3.26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Not fellowship. Faith. 1 John 5.1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. That is a fixed fact. That's one of those declarations of faith. Hereby we know. We do not argue about these things. This is what God says. Do you remember when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus? In John chapter 3? In verse 6 he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He says, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Is everyone in here born again? You're absolutely certain about that. Alright, well then this is speaking to you. This is speaking to you. Um, on your worksheet, being born of the Spirit, we are now partakers of God's nature. Now, if that don't blow your socks off, I don't know what will. First Peter, Second Peter, one, verse three and four. According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby we are given, whereby are given unto us, there's that giving nature of Jehovah God, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. On your worksheet. This divine nature is eternal life. And the means of this eternal life is the indwelling Holy Spirit, the unction, Pam, of 1 John 2.20. Okay? This unction, as John proceeds through his epistle, is also referred to as the anointing. In 1 John 2.27... But the anointing which we have received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now, what was one of the things that Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit would come to the disciples, what was one of the ministries that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would do? Teach them. Bring to their remembrance the things that Jesus taught them. In our discipleship lesson on the Holy Spirit, one of the points is that we have a resident tutor, right? The Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit in our life, is is what makes this book real to us. He opens our minds to what the truths are in the scriptures. 
Did I read 1 John 3.23? Okay. And this is the commandment. And this is the unction and anointing is now identified for us by John in 1 John 3.23-24. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment, and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the, capital S, Spirit, which he hath given us, that John said was given to us back in 1 John 2.20. So do you see John layering upon layer upon layer of truth concerning this unction? And then finally, in John, 1 John 5, 7, let's go with 6, it says, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. So here is an example of John layering truth upon truth upon truth as he builds upon this truth of the unction that we all have dwelling in us in the spirit of truth. Do you see that? That's what I mean by contemplative. That's what I mean by adding layer upon layer upon layer. He writes these layers of truth throughout his epistle to provide assurances to his readers. Personal saving faith in the word of life that is eternal life, 1 John 1 through 2, uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 2, and the indwelling Holy Spirit that is the medium of our fellowship are the essentials to have in, main, in order to maintain fellowship with the Father. There's also a third element, or a third essential, and that is the record. The third essential is the record. Okay, we all on the same page? (laughs) As I hear pages rustling. Now, I've already said a lot about the record. So I'm not going to really I'm not going to repeat myself. So I'm just going to I'm just going to quote a few scriptures, and I think I might have the references on the worksheet. First John two twenty one. I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. First John four six. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby we know the spirit of truth, and the spirit of error. First John five six. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And this is the spirit that beareth witness, because the spirit is truth. And then 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Alright, so those are all declarations of faith. They're not things up for debate. 
That's what God says. On our part, we simply believe it. We believe what God says. Now, we're coming to the theme or the purpose. Um, There is a reason why John wrote this epistle. And the reason why John wrote this epistle is because there was a threat to this fellowship. And this same threat still exists today. And that's kind of the reason, that's, that's what's kind of compelling me to go through this study. Because I don't know if everybody is aware of this, but right now, what's going on around us is a threat to our fellowship. And that's why I was compelled to go through this study. Uh, This threat to our fellowship impacts all three of these essentials. It attacks the word of life, for there are those who openly deny him. And these are folks who are preaching from pulpits. Um, The spirit, for clearly there is another spirit at work, And people are receiving this spirit. That's deceiving the people. And three, the record. And we, in this church, we know what the record is, but not many people do. And it's that old lie, yea, hath God said. It's being replayed, replayed, replayed. I mean, if it works, you know, why not use it? It's still a very powerful lie, and it still is a threat. So the, the theme or the purpose of 1 John is this. It is this fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, made known to us by the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, according to the record given to us that is the theme of this epistle. Fellowship. Uh, 1 John 5, 10 and 11. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Very plain. Very plain. The desire of John's heart for us who read this this epistle is that we should know this fellowship and not only know this fellowship but to maintain this fellowship so that we might have the full joy of our fellowship with God. Oh, what fellowship, oh, what joy divine. But there is that out there that threatens this fellowship that seeks to rob us of our joy. I'm going to have to stop. God desires fellowship with his creation. Would you agree to that? God knew the joy of this fellowship in the garden with Adam. Adam, prior to his fall, knew the joy of fellowship with God. So on your worksheet, 
Fellowship implies by its very nature a reciprocal communication. Reciprocal communication between two or more parties. In other words, we need to talk. Alright? What was that comedian's name? Joan Rivers? Can we talk? Yeah, we need to talk. To maintain fellowship, we need to keep that communication up. Adam knew the joy of God's light, God's righteousness, and God's love prior to the fall. And in return, God displayed to Adam his light, his righteousness, and his love to Adam. Alright, so there was that fellowship going on. Adam's life was rich and productive and meaningful as he walked in the light as he is in the light. As long as Adam walked in the light, he knew that joy. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with thee is the fountain of life, in thy light shall we see light. Adam knew and experienced this wonderful truth mentioned here in Psalms. He walked in the light. He fellowshiped. But when Adam fell, that fellowship was ruined. It was ruined. Adam could no longer enjoy the light of God. Why? Due to the darkness of sin that entered into that relationship. The darkness of sin had entered into the human race, and so this fellowship with God between man and God was ruined. And though God's love for Adam did not change, Adam's love for God changed. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect fear casteth out perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Do you remember the story in Genesis when Adam heard the voice of God walking in the garden? What did Adam do? He hid. He was afraid of God. Whereas before the fall, he probably ran to meet with God. But now his love for God was replaced with being afraid of God. That's sin. That's that darkness. But Jehovah, shewed grace, had shown grace. Remember, that's the meaning of John's name. The act of disobedience did not alter God's love for Adam. That's an amazing thought. That's an amazing thought. The act of disobedience did not alter God's love for Adam. And instead of immediately carrying out the sentence of physical death upon Adam, what did God do? He showed grace at that moment. Through the death of an innocent, on behalf of the guilty, God provided Adam a coat, a propitiation, to cover his nakedness. Genesis 3.21, On Adam also and to his wife did God, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Unto each an innocent was slain to cover their nakedness. As well as providing man with propitiation, a covering... Jehovah, who is gracious, also gave them a promise. You remember the promise? Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, who was God talking to at that time? The serpent. Right? The serpent who deceived Eve. 
God gave promise to Adam that fellowship would one day be fully restored, that the enmity that existed then, God will deal with that. And it would be annulled. And God and man would once again be reconciled. Romans 5, 6 through 11. The consequence of sin that is death would be paid by another. Hebrews 2, 9 through 15. And the instigator of this whole mess would be dealt with. Romans 20, verse 10. The promised seed of the woman is Jesus Christ who accomplished reconciliation between God and man through his death, burial, and resurrection. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Remember, full mention of the death of Adam and the death of Christ. Romans 5. Turn to Romans 5. I want you to see this. I want you to look at this. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Raise your hand when you're there. <laughs> Thank you, JB. <laughs> Thank you, JB. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. How many in here are ungodly? All right, we're ungodly. Okay, good. Everybody bit Ron, raise their hand. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, past tense, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, present tense, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Fellowship has been restored. Praise God. This atonement, the death of the innocent for the guilty, has restored fallen man back in favor with God. And now it is possible for all who repent of their sin, and that simply means to renounce one's own righteousness, put away your fig leaves, Adam and Eve, and put on yourself the coat that God has provided you, in Jesus Christ. And then that fellowship will be restored. So on your worksheet, God has now made fellowship possible through the word of life manifested to us by the incarnate word that is Jesus Christ. Incarnate. That means the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the Word became flesh. John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is this fellowship that John wants us to know and experience that he writes about in this epistle. 1 John 1.3, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and these things write we unto you the record that your joy might be full, or may be full. So on your worksheet, John may also be called the Apostle of Truth. For along with love in this epistle, John also emphasizes truth. 
For one cannot experience fellowship with God without love for the truth. John 4.24, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and lies. Truth. You better correct me. 1 John 3.18-19, Mighty little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. 2 John 1, verse 1 and verse 2. The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all they that know the truth, that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. So on your worksheet. It is this combination of love and truth that brings assurance to our hearts in relationship and fellowship with the Father. I'll address this in a, in a, in a moment. But there's another intended purpose of this epistle, and I mentioned it earlier, and that's to warn of a threat to this fellowship that we can know and enjoy. So I'll give you one last blank, and then we're going to have to stop. Uh, Just as with Adam and Eve in the garden, what had threatened and ultimately ruined their fellowship with God, who is light, righteousness, and love, was a lie, which is the antithesis of 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 the truth. It was a lie that led into sin. And it is this same lie that seeks to ruin our our, uh, fellowship with God even today. So the last, uh, the last uh, thing that I'm going to be able to fill in for you is what threatens to ruin fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, experienced by the anointing, anointing of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, is a lie that leads into sin, darkness, and hate. All three of which is in stark contrast to God who is light, righteousness and love so the same spirit that ruined man's fellowship in the garden that same spirit still today seeks to ruin our fellowship with the father and with his son and we'll have to stop right there any questions or missing blanks any comments should I continue with the worksheets yes okay Okay. So, as you can tell, this study is going to be doctrinal. Okay. So. All right. So, let's go ahead and close out in prayer. And, uh, Matt, I'm going to pick on you if you don't mind. Okay. Father God, I just thank you for this. This allows the 